Colin Greer, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Colin, uh, we've been friends for many years, probably over 20 years. You are a foundation president, the, the president of the New World Fund, which is uh, one of the foremost progressive uh, foundations in the United States. You're also a poet, a playwright, the chair of a theater board, a social justice activist, and a social theorist. And uh, to be candid with our listeners, uh, you've really been an intellectual mentor for me for many years. So, well, but that is the truth. So I want to put that right out there. And, uh, and so I was intrigued when you told me some years ago that you were working on a, a play about Spinoza. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, uh, who was Spinoza, and what drew you to write a play about him? Um, well, he, I'll answer, I guess, in that order, although um, maybe it happened to me in the, the, the reverse order, but he's, um, he's a 17th century philosopher who has recently been rediscovered as the, the, um, the home for a lot of um, recent scientific thinking around about the brain, um, and what drew him to me, however, was or me to him, was that he um, took a stand for what he considered to be free thinking. I can say more about that later. Um, at a time when um, there was a lot of uh, the great negative consequences for stepping out of line. Um, from orthodoxy, from his point of view, Jewish orthodoxy, but orthodoxy in general. And um, and there was a price to be paid, pretty high, high price, and he was ready to pay it. And that was a dramatic story that drew me in. Um, and what made it even more dramatic was that that excommunication was excommunicated, and that excommunication has lasted through the centuries. Um, one effort to reverse it in the 1960s failed. Um, and so this was a... Um, a very significant step that he took in the in the mind and experience of the Jewish community and also of Orthodox religious thought. Now he was a Dutch Jew, right? He was actually a Spanish Jew that was um, escaped to Holland right. during the oppression of um, of Jews from Spain and following the expulsion. But he was a family of Moranos who had converted to Christianity but hadn't really converted. Right. And at that time, the, the uh, repression in Spain was horrific. It was a, a very was difficult a time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so he, uh, they come to uh, Amsterdam, right? Mm-hmm. And in Amsterdam, there is a community of Jews, many of whom are Moranos, who converted to Christianity. And so they really have to reinvent what it means to be Jewish because the uh, Amsterdam authorities... Uh, don't want free-thinking Jews there. They want religious Jews. Exactly. And that, that's, that's the, the tension that I think is the, the trans-historical tension, that this is a man whose view of the world was so important to his own sense of authenticity that he trusted it against the, the judgment of his peers in the Jewish community who felt that he was putting the whole community at risk. Right, and as a young man... He's considered, as a very young man, he's considered one of the rising stars of the Orthodox Jewish community. He is, he is slated to become one of their religious leaders. In some it would sense. have been, yeah, he would have been a significant Jewish leader, right. um, etc. 
except that very early on he was he was reinterpreting the meaning of God for the Jewish faith. Right. And so that sense that Spinoza had of what is God uh, that mm-hmm. he reinterpreted. Uh, that remains uh, uh, in philosophy, in contemporary philosophy, uh, what many philosophers regard as, as one of the most cogent arguments for, for God. Yeah, it is. A, it's interesting that um, whenever, I, whenever I think about and read Spinoza, I'm reminded of um, Richard Rorty's um, claim that the, the major function of philosophy is to entertain philosophers. <laughs> right. Um, and that if you're lucky, it, it, it helps you think more clearly. But but it, but, it, but it is an internal game. And so the Spinoza is interesting in that respect because he has one point of view which he risks his life on, which is that God is is in everything. Not pantheistic, but the, but the expression of God is in everything. Not that God himself is in everything, but that we are all reflections. It, it's, a, it's actually a medieval thought that he, that he finds independently. Um, and but at the same time, while he challenges the orthodox stories of Bible, Bible narrative and Bible interpretation, he also says that ordinary people need their stories, so that the that the the, um, the vertical journey that he's taking is a journey that he needs, and he invites philosophers to join. But in fact, does not believe that, that the populace at large is capable of it. Now, for, for many years, in fact, after his death, uh, he was condemned by philosophers, even though some of them secretly read him. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, with, he's, he's, he was accused of being an atheist, and Leibniz played the game of, of accusing him of being an atheist and, and sharing his point of view at the same time. And uh, when was he really rediscovered by philosophers? Um, in in the, with the respect that he he has now, it's probably only thirty years. Uh huh. And partly because of of neuroscience. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Wasn't there a period uh, in the? Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact dates, but there's a period in German philosophy earlier than that where they begin to uh, recognize the contribution he made. Yeah, well, it's, when Leibniz is, is, is sort of embraced, so Spinoza too, because, because they, they, they go together in many ways. Right, but didn't... Um, so so he has, he has, he, he's excommun- the, the, the impact of the excommunication is purely an orthodox religious one. He's never been insignificant as a philosopher. Right. But, but his current significance is quite unique throughout the history of his, um, uh, the memory of his work. Mm-hmm. My memory is that Hegel, for example, said you're either a Spinozist or you're not a philosopher, for example. Yes, but, but it didn't lead to serious study of Spinoza. And, and Goethe uh, embraced him. Yeah. And, yeah. and, of course, Nietzsche famously said that, that at last in Spinoza he had found his precursor. Right, and that's because of his, he, he interpreted Spinoza as rejecting religion. Mm-hmm. Electing the idea of God, which Spinoza did not do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we can talk more about the broad uh, uh, impact uh, Spinoza's had on uh, cultural and philo- philosophical history. But I want to to return to your play. Uh, what did you uh, bring out from uh, Spinoza's life and thought in your play? Can you describe to us uh, sort of how the play works? Yeah, I can describe it in general. Then I'll tell you what I what, what's the what are the two important things in it for me. 
Um, he's a young man who's challenged by um, the the chief rabbi of the community um, to to shut up, to basically quiet down because because the community is getting aggressive and they're afraid that they will be persecuted by the Dutch. And there is a great deal of um, religious persecution in Holland. It's not against Jews, it's against Catholics. Um, so there's a great fear that it's around the corner. And he, in the play, rejects that fear and argues that the fear is based on atavistic beliefs and that bad beliefs, in the end, can't protect you. Um, and he's actually in love. There's a, there's a fictional um, dimension to the to the play in which he's in love with the rabbi's daughter. And the daughter um, invades on him to to be quiet because the difference is his, his pursuit of the truth can't be as important as the truth of his love. And they struggle around that a little bit. And um, she commits suicide because she can't be the woman that he can let her be in the community without him, because he's he's open to her intellect, and um, as she as he learns of her death, he goes into a fantasy sequence in which Rabbi Mendoza, who is the chief rabbi, becomes an agent of the devil and tempts him in a kind of Faustian way to claim power and privilege um, by being in charge of whatever new story he wants to create, as long as the story is um, compatible with with the tradition of religious stories. And he goes through a, 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 the dark night of the soul, in uh, St. John's terms, and um, in the end destroys the visions that are tormenting him. And the visions are the devil and the devil's angel, who is Esther, reincarnated as a ghost. And having triumphed over them, he realizes that he has to live a life away from the community. He has to live in loneliness. Um, that he, can, he cannot have relationships. That his ideas are too important for him, and the risk in relationship is too great. So he basically um, exiles himself. And um, the play ends with a conversation with his closest friend from the Jewish community, in which um, he both recognizes and laments the fact that he that he will be a lonely man. Oh, remarkable! Remarkable. Wasn't there uh, another play or perhaps film about Spinoza that was done recently? I can't remember. Yeah, David uh, Ives did a play about mm-hmm. the, the the trial, the actual communication. Oh, I see. Did you enjoy that? Did you find no. it interesting? Uh-huh. No, I thought it, 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 it was... Um, I, mean, I like David's work. He's, he's, a, he's a, a comedy writer by and large. Mm-hmm. The play was it's, it's superficial. Mm-hmm. My mind ended up being thought of that way, but, but I tried for greater depth. Mm-hmm. And um, so... In terms of your own uh, beliefs, um, would you consider yourself a Spinozist? No. How would you describe your own beliefs, your own perspective? Well, there, there are two, as I said earlier, there are two dimensions to the Spinozian point of view that interest me. One is is the the vertical horizontal axis, that how one lives in relationship to higher values. And on the vertical plane, and informs one's life on the horizontal and material plane with that understanding. Um, that's the challenge he presents, and he actually resolves it by by reducing the ambitions of who can be on that vertical plane. Um, 
so in the end, it's even though he talks about a democratic, um, sovereign state in in the politics, he actually excludes um, a democratic base from participation in that. So he never, even even um, I hope I'm not rambling here, but even when he's talking about the brain and the mind, um, he does, he deals with democracy. He deals with the mind body question, he deals with aesthetics as though they're unrelated to the question of God. That's that's a theological question. So that the, the vertical horizontal axis is not a place where you resolve the tensions in all those other dimensions. It's just about how you talk about God and human life. Uh-huh. And so the important thing for me is the challenge of how do, how do you bring those forces together? Um, I, I was thinking about this the other day in relation to um, this. This may be a leak, but, but I hope it will be um, instructive. In relation to Sarah Palin, um, you know, there's a huge amount of, um, of comedy around her use of the notes on her palm. Right. And from my point of view, that that captures, in a sense, a problem with Spinoza and a problem with any progressive um, intellectual thought and political leadership. That that that's in a sense, that's her claim to fame. We all do that. You know, who as a child didn't take an exam and put notes on their hand if they could? The Palm Pilot is now the order of the day for getting quick access to information you don't remember. Um, she is she is presenting herself as the person the public at large will recognize themselves to be. And then there's a there's a group that she would call elite. I don't think that's the right way to terminate it, but it would include me who laugh at her inability to be the higher-level person we aspire to for ourselves. But we haven't reached it. So from our aspiration, we're critical. and We cut ourselves off from a, uh, from a conversation with people who identify with her. Um, we identify against her to, 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 to claim the ideal we're struggling to, to achieve. But it creates an enormous gap. And I think that enormous gap is exactly what, what allowed Spinoza not to understand that his community was actually at risk, that he, that he, that he was somehow uh, above that because he had an aspiration for himself that he identified with his authenticity. That's where he's a modernist philosopher. This is where authenticity enters into the dialogue and becomes a political force. Right. And and as many people regard him as as the first modernist philosopher, isn't that yeah. true? Yeah. Um, he had he's had an extraordinary cultural impact. Um, let's just talk about that for a moment. Um, uh, in uh, looking at the not always accurate but nonetheless instructive Wikipedia mm-hmm. uh, piece on him on his modern relevance, and so they cite just an extraordinary range of people from Karl Marx uh, uh, to George Santayana, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, we've mentioned Nietzsche. Uh, uh, Leo Strauss uh, famously argued uh, with, uh, with Spinoza, and Strauss's argument is picked up again uh, by... Um, 
uh, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, who mm-hmm. wrote a book called Arguing with Spinoza, and a more recent book that I just read called 36 Arguments for the Existence of God. Uh-huh. And the last of those arguments is, is the Spinoza argument, which she regards as the strongest of all the arguments. So uh, there's this sense, even in addition to the powerful impact he's had on uh, uh, mind-body science, uh, there's this sense that he continues to actually be relevant uh, to contemporary philosophy. Yeah, um, but to philosophy. I mean, that's, that's the royalty point. Right. It, it doesn't resolve the, the political, philosophical problem. Right, it doesn't. And, uh, and, and most philosophers don't allow it to raise that problem. Right. And let's go to that in a moment, but just staying with the philosophical issue, mm-hmm. as, as I understand the philosophical issue, uh, uh, Strauss and, uh, uh, and others uh, say, in effect, that uh, his premise that the universe can be understood by reason mm-hmm. is itself a leap of faith. Absolutely. And it's a leap of faith just as great as a belief in some orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. Derrida probably summarized that well when he said that um, that, that, that logic is itself an act of faith. Right. Now, do you do you personally? This is actually a very interesting question to me. Do you personally share that sense that the universe can be understood by logic, by reason, or do you feel that the universe is essentially mysterious? Um, I'm not sure those are contradictory. Okay, right. Fair enough. Um, I think it is essentially mysterious, yeah. and it's an invitation to try to penetrate the mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's mistaken to think that the words we use to describe what we're grappling with actually capture anything like the depth of the reality in that mystery. And so that when you debate one point of view on, uh, on of faith with another point of view of faith, you're really only arguing about words. Mm-hmm. And, and unless you can use the word faith with a feeling of depth attached to it that lets you know the limitation of the, the lexicon of your reason, then you're, in fact, imposing an orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Now, Spinoza had three levels of, of relating to, to the world, to reason. Uh, and I may not have the exact terms right, but the first was the imagination, the second was uh, reason in some sense, and the third was what he called scientia, or sort of scientific uh, knowledge, yeah. knowing. Um, and and they, were, they sort of built on each other, but the highest level, it interested me, uh, also has a strong intuitive uh, dimension to mm-hmm. it. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's his... It's his um, I would say it's his, tradi- it's his tradition from Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And Kabbalah means to receive. Right. And the imagination is, is, the, is receiving. Right. And so Leo Strauss, who was a, a very famous uh, conservative philosopher who's had a huge impact on, on political thought in our time, and his argument with Spinoza was not only pointing out that, that Spinoza's leap of faith into reason was just as great as the leap of faith into orthodoxy, but Strauss, and again, I get this from a book you recommended to me, uh, 
Spinoza's uh, Book of Life by Stephen B. Smith, who's a mm -hmm. professor of philosophy at, uh, at Yale, a professor of political science at Yale. Um, but Strauss ends up saying that you can't abandon either faith or reason, that uh, if you make the leap into faith, it must be in tension with reason, or if you make the leap into reason, it must be in tension with faith. And he, he talks about that intersection of faith and reason as, as the nerve center at the heart of Western thought. He wants to, he wants to put it there. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I don't think Spinoza would have disagreed. Right. Um, you know, it's hard to argue over four centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he would have disagreed. I mean, the thing is, Strauss moved that to a conservative model. Mm -hmm. um, Levinas moves it, or Levinas moves it to a progressive model. Mm -hmm. You either lead with fear on the one hand and the inadequacy of the, of the, of the, human, of the human, or you lead with love, um, as Levinas did, mm -hmm. um, and, and you open up to, uh, um, to inclusiveness mm -hmm. rather than defensiveness. Um, Strauss went the defensive route. So this brings us back to the point that you've been emphasizing about how we deal with the political implications of mm -hmm. these core issues in, in Western thought. And I want to ask you, again, how you personally uh, resolve them. In other words, how does your vertical axis work? What, what, what in, in all the thinking that you've done, and you've been so helpful to me in, in reading and a vast array of, of different fields of thought. Uh, how do you, and I've never asked you this, how, how do you personally describe your vertical axis and how does it relate to the very remarkable work you've done on, on the horizontal axis of, of being a, a social philosopher and activist in the world? Well, Michael, that's a huge question. Um, well, it is, but it's a good yeah. question for us to discuss. Yeah. Um, Um, I think that the, the, the vertical axis, from, let me start the other way. I think the, the horizontal axis for me is an axis of, of personal evolution. I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's frozen in place. Um, so, so that the, it's almost as though the vertical axis is an axis of gravity pulling the, the horizontal axis into accountability. And that one, one develops the capacity to be more and more accountable over a lifetime. Um, so, so on that vertical axis, for me, are such principles as faithfulness um, and um, love. In, so if you think of the, of the line, of, of the vertical line, at the top, I put faithfulness and love and qualities of, um, of, of interactive authenticity. And, and informing it from the bottom, I would put a term, something like emptiness. So the goal is to, is to be able to be on that vertical axis um, in tune receiving the, 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 the ideal of faithfulness and chastity and connectedness, and at the same time to receive them with emptiness so that you, in fact, come from that experience to the horizontal axis without a frozen position, that, that your faithfulness is not about attaching rigidly 
to a point of view, to an imaginative ideal, to um, an idealized other, um, but rather open to changes um, and opportunities to grow along the, the horizontal axis, which is the axis of the materialization of love. Um, and there, um, love on one side of it, maybe on the right, would be would be um, would be mediated at the other end on the left by uh, a term like moderation. That the, the love we can bring to the to the horizontal axis as it materializes into social and material life has to be moderated so that love doesn't become um, addictive, doesn't become greed, doesn't become self-serving. Um, so I'm describing how I think about it. I'm not sure that that's um, a resolution, but it's a work in progress. Now, are there any thinkers or sources for you uh, that you would uh, point to as most resonant with that vision that you've just described? I think Emmanuel Levinas. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I know Emmanuel Levinas. He's a French-Jewish philosopher. Um, he lived until quite recently, um, and he, um, he comes out of um, the phenomenological movement, studied with um, 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 Husserl and Heidegger, um, and, um, and his work, there's several works on otherness, um, which um, think about material life, which he ends up calling the economy, um, beginning with the pre-understanding we have for each other through the um, the encounter with the other's face. His, um, he, he, his, first, his first works are about how we see each other through the face and um, mobilize a self in relation to what we see on the outside. And that that, that pre-verbal encounter with the other sets in motion a set of, um, I guess, a drives in the, in the Freudian sense and reason in the Spinozian sense, that, we are, that we're, we're, set, we're set off in, onto a course in which our drives and our higher senses are in tension, because the other is both what we need to be whole and a challenge to our sense of security. Um, and um, he, he resolves it through active love through working on developing the capacity for love. Now, having described Levinas as a, as a key source for you, is, is your... We talked about the, the tension between the, the philosophical and theological traditions between uh, Athens and Jerusalem, as people famously put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you locate yourself on that axis of, of uh, Athens and Jerusalem? Um, I don't. Um, I think that you know, I'm with Rorty here. I think I think philosophy is moribund when it does that. Um, 
internal conversation. Mm-hmm. The issue is what's the relationship between Athens to Jerusalem and Jerusalem and Athens to living a life now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that a, the late that a formula from any one of those eras is um, simply useful now. It's really about being a benchmark for re-engagement. Um, and if it's not a benchmark for re-engagement, it's simply the trans transmission of orthodoxy. And they're both orthodoxies. Okay, but then to put it bluntly, do you believe in or have a sense of God or the divine or the sacred in life? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean... I, I think you know the Nordic idea of God and where that, where that word comes from is really a way of describing um, what's beyond our understanding. So I think that again, just just as you use the word Athens or you use the word Jerusalem, the word God is equally limiting. Um, it, it's a it's a shorthand for what is totally beyond our understanding, but not beyond our imagination, mm-hmm. and that's sacred. Um, and when the world um, is out of touch with the sacred, then people are out of touch with each other. And if the world has, has toxified the sacred, occupied it with, with, um, you know, with, with um, false premises and, and destructive armies, um, the sacred will turn around and bite us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I, I think it, it can't be colonized. It has to, it has to be kept open space. Mm-hmm. Part of your description of that uh, vertical axis for you, uh, the fact that there's not a fixed place, but that it's a movement through life toward mm-hmm. greater accountability and chastity and love and uh, uh, and uh, faithfulness. Faithfulness, mm-hmm. um, and uh, part of that. Uh, 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 journey sounds a lot like what Carl Jung described as individuation. Yes, I think that his distinction between individualism and individuation is is a, sort of a tremendous contribution. And despite Jung's flirtation with Nazi thought, have uh-huh. you found Jung's uh, Jung's perspective to be valuable in the evolution of your own thinking? Yes, I have. I, I, I once toyed with writing a book. I got lost when I was at, at a tenure meeting when I was given tenure. I talked about a book I was planning to write that they literally laughed at me about, which was um, um, I want to write about Jung and Marx. Uh-huh. Because I think that Marx's um, final ideal of human fellowship is informed by the Jungian perspective. How beautiful. And for you, are Jung and Marx two key... Uh, thinkers or uh, investigators in your own journey? They have been, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, they were, if there were shoulders I stand on, they're definitely among them. How interesting. And I, I want to go back to the beginning of your journey, which I found so fascinating. You, you grew up uh, in uh, England uh, in an Orthodox Jewish family in London, is that correct? In the East End of London, yeah. Right. And if I remember correctly, your father... Uh, owned a little, uh, what, candy and... A sweet shop. A sweet shop. Yeah. And, uh, and I think you once told me that there was somebody who 
sold books that you that yes, had a yeah, great influence on you. He's remembering very well. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, my father um, in the shop. It's it's an you know an immigrant uh, sweet shop, a candy shop here, which sold everything. Mm-hmm. So we sold, mm-hmm. we sold candy, we sold cigarettes, mm-hmm. we sold toys, we sold women's nylons, um, and we sold we had a, we had a paperback rack, uh, one of those circular racks, right, with paperbacks on them, and the um, there would be a salesman that came every week to restock the rack. And um, he would let me get into the back of his van and pick the books that would go on the rack. He didn't read books. He was just a salesman. But I idealized him because he was, he was the access to books. And I would read really just the jacket and the introduction and pick the books that we would stock that week. Um, and um, it, was, you know, it, was, it was a part of an early romance with books. Now, were you unusual in your community and your romance with uh, books and literature? Yes. Um, I say that guardedly because, you know, I grew up in a, in a community that was it's, you know, working class, East End of London, where very few people are selected into the opportunity to be open yes. to learning. So um, I had a family that... that Determined that I would be, and a culture because I because I was unusual coming to school. My parents bought the Encyclopedia Britannica and the King's English Dictionary when I was three months old. So they had ambitions for you. For me, yes. Yeah, for me, not for my brother, but for me. Mm-hmm. And um, that was so, so. It was predetermined in a way. Um, the one thing that was I think was uniquely me, and I don't know. You know, I think that was a, that was a given. Was that you? Know, my my parents were like. Most of the people we grew up with very insular and easily offended, and people could be cut off and never spoken to again. Like Spinoza. Like Spinoza. Yeah, like Spinoza. Mm-hmm. And from very early on, I would almost defiantly speak to the people they no longer would speak to. Like Spinoza. Like Spinoza. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, Spinoza, interestingly enough, Spinoza would go to local churches. I mean, this is it's an interesting contradiction given what he thought about the masses. They would go to churches to try to understand what people got from it. Mm-hmm. And where did your family come from? Had they been in, in England for a long time, or were they no, immigrants? My grandparents came from Poland uh-huh. Uh-huh. in 1912. So what was your trajectory up from working-class uh, uh, East uh, London uh, to the United States? What were the, the stages of that journey? Um, I was at a, I was at a university selection grammar school. Um, I fell in love with theatre, and was originally bound to go into theatre. I was um, offered a position, a very junior apprenticeship position with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and um, at the same time, I was accepted to London School of Economics. And um, I was told by by Peter Brook that I could not both that I would have to choose and I went to LSE um, and basically turned away from theater for quite some time I became the worst critic of theater I mean I hated everything I saw and if I liked anything I was, I was jealous of it um, took years to undo that um, but at LSE I, be, um, I was bored out of my mind and felt very caught cool between cultures because it was a very upper-class culture and um, there was a young American scholar doing a doctoral um, fellowship, teaching a course on American history. And he wore this amazingly attractive three-button suit in a daring kind of color. And um, I sort of 
identify with him. I fell in love with him and um, began to specialize in American history. And then when I got to, to doctoral study, um, by then I was really interested in... Um, I was teaching part-time at a high school in England, which had gone to 60, 6% black, and they were panic-stricken. And I was fascinated by racial problems in America. So I focused the doctoral dissertation on that and came here to collect data. Came to the United States. Mm-hmm. Where I discovered your father writing in uh, a popular magazine and thought, hmm, one can actually be an academic that speaks to the world. Uh-huh. That being Max Lerner. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so you graduated from LSE? Mm-hmm. And did you then find a job in the United States? I um, came here... This, this, okay, this is this case. This would be a story all of itself, Michael. I came here, and um, I had a green card because I was assured in 1965 that um, with my um, my education and the fact that I wasn't an American citizen, that I would not be subject to the draft. And I came here, and within three weeks, I got my papers. Uh huh. And had to go down to Whitehall and get get the health test and. Um, did all the things that one does not to go to Vietnam, mm-hmm. um, and was successful because of a very quirky set of events, mm-hmm. extremely quirky. And um, and I, w- I had written a letter to Mobilization for Youth, which you may remember at the time, was one of the great society programs in New York City, and suggested to them that I was an out-of-work graduate student from England who was studying immigration and race in America, and since they were providing services along such dimensions, my studies could be helpful. And the letter um, hit uh, a woman there, was received by a woman there, Hannah Levin, who said, I love this letter, but we have no work for you. But my sister at Columbia, Miriam Goldberg, a psychologist, um, has an opening, and I'm going to call her and you should go up there. So I went up there, and Miriam hired me as a teaching assistant. How fascinating. And, um, and that, was, that was really how I got rooted in the Academy in America. So you then ultimately became, a, a, what, a professor of, of social thought? Is that correct? Uh, history and social theory, yeah. And that was at? Um, when, I was, when I was tenured, it was at Brooklyn College. At Brooklyn College. Yeah, I had a social magazine. And then you, you ended up being an editor of, of uh, a major intellectual a periodical, if I remember correctly. Social policy magazine. Social policy. Okay. I just wanted to establish that trajectory, uh, and then from there, you were hired to be the president of the New World Fund. Is that yes. correct? Yes. And, and just for those listeners who obviously don't know, that at the New World Fund, uh, and I've studied philanthropy and we've worked in this field together for many years, you really did some very, and continue to do some very extraordinary things with, with progressive... Uh, uh, social philanthropy. Um, and so what is completely fascinating to me is that you have this day job as a foundation president, but then at night, often for eight hours, you also uh, have this complete theater life, which goes back to your childhood romance with, with theater. Yes, yes. So it's, it's an extraordinary combination of, of, uh, of skills. Um, so, uh, circling back to Spinoza again, mm-hmm. um, uh, you say you're not a Spinozist, but that clearly the resonances for your life are, are very real. Yes. 
um, and and reading and I haven't read the the primary documents. I I, I looked at them. I haven't read directly in Spinoza's thought very much yet, and I wanted to talk to you first. In fact, by the way, if if someone wants to start reading Spinoza directly and not just the secondary uh, sources, is the ethics the place to start? Yes, I think so. Right. And and the ethics is written almost in geometric form. Yes. Uh, it, it, uh, it took... It took a lot of its uh, thinking from uh, Descartes. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yet, even though there's a geometric form, the substance of the ethics is, is very personal. You don't read it like a geometry book, even though it's theoretically written in that way. It's it's uh, deeply discursive. Yeah. Yeah. So when you have, I assume you've read most of Spinoza, the primary sources. A lot. I wouldn't say most. Mm-hmm. Do you find him difficult? Um, I don't. Um, but I have a little, you probably share this, but I have a quirk. I actually, I think I have an erotic experience with philosophy. Uh-huh. I think I just get excited by mm-hmm. philosophy. So I don't experience difficulty. Mm-hmm. And that's, what that's, I mean, that's why I think it really is a particular um, uh, field to play in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when one reads the ethics, do you? I'm just trying to get a sense of: is it best to try to read it sort of straight through, or is it a book that it's better to sort of dip in and out of and see what you can find? I think it's. Um I think it's really useful to read commentary alongside, mm-hmm. um, unless someone is trained to read it. So um, I think if you're going to it because you, you you've heard about it, you find it, think it might be interesting. It's not like going to read Anne Rand. It's not. It's not easy. It's, you have to sort of find your way in matching your bodies. And I think that mm-hmm. um, using a, a guide, somebody who's really read him carefully alongside, is very useful. So you mentioned this wonderful book by Stephen Smith, Spinoza's yeah. Book of Life. What other guides would you particularly well, recommend? Yeovil, two volumes. It's really valuable. Who is that? Yeovil, um, his first name, I've got it right in front of me. Hang on one second. It's an Israeli philosopher. It's, it's um, Yirmiyahu Yeovil, mm-hmm. J-O-Y-O-V-E-L. Mm-hmm. And there are two volumes, and um, they're quite wonderful, and they're very useful. Is it a biography, or is it an... It's, it's an intellectual biography, mm-hmm. um, but with a lot of the, the, the personal, and mm-hmm. um, it deals both with um, the Jewish identity and the philosophy. Mm-hmm. They're both they're published by University of Princeton Press. Mm-hmm. Going back to our discussion of, of your trajectory, but broadening it out on a sort of a horizontal axis, if you will, of, of mm-hmm. your, your life in the world. Uh, how would you describe the, the main uh, themes or uh, preoccupations of your life in the world right now? What are the main elements that you uh, find yourself returning to or sustaining or being faithful to? You mean uh, you mean issues and concerns? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I love about theater um, is that 
that there is no theater until there's collaboration. That that the two elements of theater beyond the writing are that there must be collaboration in a very rich way where people bring their intellects and imaginations to bear on a piece of work that didn't begin as theirs. And then they have to produce a product that then is seen by a larger world. That process is one we have a very hard time delivering on when it comes to a social and political agenda. That that both the task of having an ear to the ground so that what you write is resonant, having collaborators who will help it grow and not freeze it in place, and the readiness to have a public engage it and um, have it be tested in a way that it becomes separate from you um, are elements that, that I struggle with in, in the social and political environment. So, so early on, I talked about Sarah Palin. That's one example. But, but, but in, uh, more, more cogently, I think the the ideas that we progressives. And I, let me identify myself that way. The progressives who cons, cons, are concerned with changing the world as evidence through the conditions at the bottom, kind of a, a, a Rawlsian perspective that, that the way people live at the bottom, poor people, people who are underused and underfulfilled, that the quality of their lives is the measure of the society. If, you, if, if that's a perspective from which you come, then how to do that, how to move in that direction and actually respect the people living in those conditions even when their point of view, when their worldview is, is in opposition to your own, is, I think, uh, a task that we have barely named, let alone resolved. Um, I think it keeps, it keeps getting in our way, because ultimately, even when we talk about respect for those for whom we want to be in service, we actually don't respect them to the extent that when they throw up our shadow, we reject them rather than recognize our shadow. I actually deeply agree with that, um, and it's fascinated me for a long time. Um, I actually wrote an essay for the American Scholar when I was at Yale uh, as a very young man called Respectable Bigotry, mm -hmm. and it was about the bigotry of the uh, intelligentsia and the upper middle class toward the lower middle class. Uh, and, you know, the, the disdain of, of the students for the police and the way they looked at the world and so yeah. forth. And, and I saw an alliance between uh, sort of the upper middle class and, and the poor, but uh, another alliance between the wealthy and the lower middle class. So you sort of skip even, a even class. Poor, even the poor, Michael. You know, Michelle Obama, who you know, I admire enormously, um, if you think about this political moment, and you look at the Tea Party, and you look at the the, you listen to what's being said. The one of the last things you would do, I think, is declare war on obesity. Oh, that's fascinating. Poor people are fat. Right. No matter why you tell them that they are fat, nevertheless, you are complaining about their fatness. Mm -hmm. And I think it is elite politics. That's you can talk about their health without talking about their obesity. Mm -hmm. And 
And I just think we've been putting our foot in the mud. Mm-hmm. So that that sense that you have that that if you measure a society by the condition of uh, of the poor, that uh, one has to and theoretically you respect the poor, but in fact you reject the political view that that sustains them. Yes, and, re- and reject what they look like. And reject what they look like. Absolutely. So that describes your 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 sense of the importance of theater, and uh, and it moves us toward uh, your commitment to social action in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe your your theory of uh, or, or praxis of uh, effective social action uh, on behalf of the poor and on behalf of uh, a just society in our time? Um, well, I, I, I try to answer that, recognizing that, there's, that we don't have a great measure of success to, um, to justify what I'm about to say. Um, but the way we work here and the, the, the framework I've tried to introduce at the Foundation, which I guess now characterizes the Foundation, is that we work closely with... We fund, we fund as close to the ground as we can. We work closely in participation with people who are doing the work on the ground. We don't, we don't develop agendas for them but with them. We now have moved our board so that the majority members of the board are from organizations that we have funded or might fund or could fund. Um, so our conversation is with the folks we work with. But at the same time, I'm recognizing that the, um, the umbrella social justice framework, the worldview, um, is not made in one segment of society, and so we try to we try to be in conversation um, and use money to pro- provoke conversation in other sectors of society, um, in the academy, in law schools, in, um, among senatorial staff. Um, 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 we introduce issues that we then bring scholars together to think about, like. Right now, we're working on the revenue question. How do you responsibly deal with public spending in an economy such as this, um, rather than just flail at the idea that there should be more money spent to create social justice? Well, what's, what is the responsible way to think about revenue? Um, so we're trying to have co- be involved in a series of sectoral conversations while we spend the bulk of our resources trying to create democratic participation that includes those people that suffer most from the, from the way our society is structured. And how would you describe um, the, how would you describe your analysis of the current moment in terms of, uh, of the sort of social theoretical framework that makes the most sense to you? In, in other words, what's happening in America and the world right now? What is uh, uh, you know what is the uh, what is the structure? Briefly, because we don't have a great deal of time. But uh, what is the the structure of thought that enables us best to understand this global crisis that we're in right now? Um, well, I think two elements that are that are endemic are, are fear and greed. Um, that we've balanced off fear and greed now for quite some time. And they are—they are working. They, they're living in an autonomous dynamic of their own. 
unrelated to the realities of, of, um, of material availability, um, of human population scale in relation to the planet, um, to habits of consumption and of mind that now um, demand um, a level of consumptive um, um, uh, hunger that um, can't be satisfied with any just distribution. Um, but I think the, the questions that one would ask about social distribution and the institutions that can more democratically administer are secondary to the way in which culturally greed and fear dominate. Mm-hmm. And um, addressing that, I, and I, I don't have a formula for addressing that, but I think sensitivity to it, recognizing that that, that, that the worst political presence we encounter is in fact the manifestation of fear and greed um, is a helpful way to engage the opposition, whatever that is in any given circumstance. Are we witnessing the, the beginning of the decline of American hegemonic power in the world? Well, that, that, that's a done deal. Mm-hmm. We're not witnessing the decline. We, we are, we are at, 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 at the middle or tail end of a process that's been a process of decline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, got, it's almost a folk wisdom now that this is the fastest empire in world history. Mm-hmm. Um, Partly because it never was an empire of any old style, mm-hmm. um, but, but but we are. The question is why? Why is that important? Is there is there something to be learned this time from a decline that still is so wealthy and so influential and so powerful that it can be dignified and just? Um, that's the opportunity. Decline could be a moment of enormous contribution. But worrying about the decline our decline is going to push us back into the, the fear and greed reflect, reflex. Colin, we've come to the end of our time, uh, but I just want to thank you for this extraordinarily rich exploration of Spinoza, of uh, uh, the trajectory that brought you to Spinoza, of uh, some of your own social and philosophical thinking. Um, Colin Greer, thank you so much for being with us at the New School. Thanks, Michael. I, I, I really appreciate having this conversation with you, and I do hope it's of interest to people other than you and me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the chance we'll take. <laughs> thank you so much, Colin Greer. Thanks very much.